0: Welcome to the True True Condos Podcast with Andrew LaFleur, the place to get the truth on the Toronto condo market and condo investing in Toronto. Context is everything. So when you see a headline in the media like Canadian real estate overvalued by 30%, but you don't have any context behind that statement, why that statement was said. Who said that statement, what research they did on that statement, what caveats are attached to that statement, what other considerations there are. If you don't know any of that background, then it's very dangerous to go and make decisions based on that headline alone. But unfortunately, that's human nature, and that's what we do, and, and that's how the media uh, has been trained, or we've trained the media to feed us the news Uh, is through more simplistic headlines like that and simplistic articles that don't go into detail about what's going on behind the scenes. But again, that's exactly what this podcast is all about, is to go behind the scenes, to go deeper, to dive into the subject matters that we don't get a chance to get into when we're just reading our 400 or 600 word articles in the newspaper or online or in blogs. So once again, here we are again today, I'm going to be interviewing Peter Norman, from Altus Group, and we're going to be talking about that question specifically. Uh, The IMF was the latest one to say the Canadian real estate is overvalued. Uh, I think their number was 30%. So Peter Norman actually is an economist with Altus Group, and he has actually consulted with the IMF directly. So when the IMF comes to town and they're looking at the local markets, they're going to the local experts, uh, economists, and so on. To find out what's happening in the market. And Peter Norman is one of the guys that they go to. So he's a great guy to talk to about this question. Is the Canadian real estate market overvalued by 30%? Um, Obviously you can guess his answer to that question is a resounding no. But you want to hear the interview to find out why that is. What it means. And also to learn more about the context behind the IMF statements. Uh, that they are saying there's, uh, the market is overvalued. So let's get to the interview here with uh, Peter Norman. He's a great guy to talk to. Very fascinating um, look at the numbers behind the scenes into, into what is happening in the market. And uh, very experienced economist, been looking and tracking the real estate market for about 30 years now, and he's been investing himself in the real estate market for almost that long as well. So without further ado, let's get to the interview with Peter Norman from Altus Group. And of course, for all the show notes on this episode, you can just go to truecondos.com forward slash podcast, and you'll find the notes for this episode, as well as all the other episodes of the True Condos podcast. So here it is, my interview with Peter Norman. Welcome to the True Condos Podcast with Andrew LaFleur, the place to get the truth on the Toronto condo market and condo investing in Toronto. It's my pleasure to welcome to the show Peter Norman. Peter is a well-known professional land economist and forecaster and is chief economist at Altus Group and general manager of Altus Group Economic Consulting. Widely quoted in the Canadian media, Mr. Norman is a frequent expert witness on economic matters and consults for private and public sector organizations across Canada, providing economic intelligence and strategic advice. Peter, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you very much, Andrew. It's a pleasure to be on this uh, great podcast.
0: Thank you very much for joining us. Peter, why don't you start by maybe just telling everybody, I read your bio there, um, but uh, maybe you can just tell us a little bit more about yourself your background how you uh got started into uh into your career in uh, you know econo- economics and real estate
1: well sure i'd uh, i'd love to it's um it can be it can be a long story i suppose but uh you know it's uh, it's been good i have been uh, a housing market watcher and uh, and analyst in one capacity or another now for uh about 30 years um i was uh, i bought my first real estate investment in um the late 1980s uh and uh you know uh, 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 thinking about thinking about uh, learning through the school of hard knocks i realized there are some mistakes in that but anyway that's been part of my uh that's been part of my education as well uh, I have uh, a couple of degrees in economics uh I worked as a bank economist for many years with one of the large banks uh and as you know um the economics departments in banks are you know always keenly interested in housing and you certainly see them see some of the economists from banks uh you know uh, weighing in on the housing sector even today and uh about uh, 16 17 years ago I joined a company called Clayton Research, um, which was headed by Frank Clayton, who's a, a long-standing uh, uh, leader in the housing analysis, housing economics world in, in Canada, and has been for about half a decade now. And uh, working with Frank was, you know, tremendously beneficial in terms of understanding the underlying issues in markets and how to analyze them. Um, I became a partner in Clayton Research and then about eight years ago, we, we as, a, as a firm sold ourselves or merged into uh, what's known as Altus Group and Altus Group is a large multidisciplinary firm in in real estate and property and, uh, and construction, etc. sectors. We have land appraisers and tax consultants and so on and so forth and uh, and, uh, my responsibility within the company as the uh, the chief economist is to run the economic consulting team which is uh, more or less the former Clayton Research and we uh, devote most of our efforts to continuing to service clients um, through economic studies again around property and development and real estate and urban growth issues and so on and so forth. Uh, We advise a lot of a lot of property investors we advise a lot of builders uh we advise municipalities and so on and so forth uh we also uh, direct the economic scenario and uh, and all of the economic work uh internally in the firm so um we so a, a big part of our firm does for instance valuation uh, uh how uh, 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 the property appraisal for a for a factory or an office tower or or whatever else and uh and, and and that work is is always based on our economic scenario as well. So we uh we touch in one way or another with with our work uh, the team that I that I direct we t- we touch uh billions and billions of dollars worth of property across the across the uh country and are involved in it and uh we're constantly watching the market for um for uh, why why it's doing what it's doing right now and where it's going. And I suspect that's part of what we're going to be talking about today.
0: Exactly. Yeah, but before we do that, um, I'd love to go back into and, and something you said, your first real estate investment in the late 1980s. I'm always curious to hear, you know, uh, especially somebody like yourself who's who's been in the game for a long time. Um, what was that first property? Can you tell us about it? Where was it? What was it? How did it work out? How did it turn out for you?
1: Well, I, I was... Uh, I was in university at the time studying economics and thought mm-hmm. that I knew a lot about this stuff. Well, I think I probably did okay about knowing about this stuff. Um and I bought a, I bought a fiveplex and, uh, wow. you know, it, like, like a lot of university students, I suppose, you know, try to do, some of them with their parents and some without. Uh, you know, I bought a fiveplex knowing that, uh, you know, that I would be, you know both living and then it be a be a be a rental investor <laughs> i suppose uh for for the other units and so on and so forth and you know i think that in the end that investment was was okay um and and i held it for many years and uh uh but it was uh, it was in a smaller market it was in, in a smaller ontario market it wasn't in the gta and uh you know the as you know those uh, those property prices fell um, a lot uh, between the late 1980s and about the mid 1990s. And then in this particular smaller market, they, they really, it took a long, long time for them to even sort of break, break even. So I'm not in that investment at the moment, but, uh, I've had other investments since and, uh, and have been actually, uh, a, I've had, I've had tenants, I, I, I have personally had tenants for, uh, you know, over that entire time in one property or another. So we've had a variety of different sorts of investments.
0: What's the number one thing you learned from that first investment?
1: Well, I mean, uh, there's a lot of nuts and bolts, of course, <laughs> that every investor does when they first get into it. It's just about the the nature of uh, of what you need to do to buy and what you need to do to manage and what you need to, to do to um, look for tenants and uh, so on and so forth. So there's a lot of that kind of nuts and bolts. Um, also, I think big lessons out of it came from the idea about interest rate risk, obviously, uh, you know, it was a time of high interest rates, and uh, and, and and that was, uh, you know, that was an, that was an issue uh, in the in the investment, and uh, and also in terms of, uh, you know, in terms of uh, sort of market overall kind of market growth and 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 depth in terms of the way that that will impact, uh, you know, potential uh, capital appreciation over time.
0: So, touching on the idea of smaller market versus a larger market, where was it? Uh, was it in? You went to university in, in Trent in Peterborough. Was it in Peterborough? That, that was in Peterborough. Yeah. Okay. Um, would you do anything differently if if you could if you had a time machine go back? Would you Would you still buy that property, or would you?
1: I probably would. Yes. I, I, yeah.
0: That
1: <laughs> is I, 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 a negative thing. There's yeah. sort of a school of hard knocks in the, in the sense that you know you don't you don't like to see no investor likes to see capital value go down um even if it even if it recovers ultimately um but it's uh you know as 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 you well know um cash flow is important is is important or more important in terms of uh in terms of any investment and uh and i don't characterize this one as being being poor in that regard
0: Let's that's great. Let's uh, always great to hear, you know, personal experiences, especially that first one. I find the first one is often the one where you learn the everybody learns the hard lessons on the first one. uh, And then it's a lot smoother after that. Um, But let's jump into the market itself. Uh, A lot of hot button sort of topics that you've written about and talk about frequently. We'll start with the the classic, the market is overvalued by you know, you you pick a number, but the the number right now that people seem to be focused on is something like thirty percent. So, um, is the market in Canada or in the GTA overvalued by thirty uh, percent?
1: It's not, and but I also, you know, i i have I have difficulty with the way that this issue has sort of been framed, um, and not just by the media. We often kind of you know complain about the way. The media right. treat issues, and that's mm-hmm. a you know that's a tired shoe to be to be wearing to you know to to say how, how the headlines often don't match the analysis and this and that and the other thing. It's not just the media, but it's also by the analysts and uh, and even by the regulators. So, the overvaluation issue right now is primarily being put forward uh, by. By risk evaluators in the reg, in, the, in uh, amongst regulators, so for example, the Bank of Canada assesses um housing balances uh in their uh financial system review uh and that's you know one of the that's one of the uh one of the recent pronouncements on on the degree to which housing markets may be overvalued has come from from that research. Uh, the International Monetary Fund, which of course assesses a very similar sort of thing, sort of, uh, fi- you know, financial stability type issues country by country, also has, has weighed in recently, um on, on Canada. And actually they were here, as they do, for these measures, and I consulted with them, they came, and they, and we met together.
0: Uh, well, that's very interesting.
1: I I am kind of aware of their kind of yeah. and how they go go through on those assessments. But what I what I want to say on that valuation thing is that is that the word is wrong. First of all, the word is wrong. Um and I think that is what freaks out um uh us, you and I. <laughs> that's what freaks out um You know, potential investors when they hear the word, that's what freaks out the media or at least, or maybe it excites the media because it gives them something to, you know, it gives them something to write a a riling headline about. Um, but the word is wrong because I think that, you know, you or I or the average investor out there, when they hear the word, uh, you know, overvaluation, you immediately think the last transaction that took place was a bad one or, you know, recent transactions were bad. And that's, you know, that that I just bought a, I just bought a, a property from you for, you know, 700000 but it's really only worth, you know, $550,000. Uh, I overpaid you for that property. It's overvalued. And that's not what it... You know, that's the common sense term of overvaluation. But right. that is not what, uh, that's not what, uh, is happening to the market right now. But importantly, that's not what the Bank of Canada is saying, and that's not what the IMF are saying. What both of those groups are in, uh, involved in doing or employed in doing is, uh, assessing what's called market vulnerabilities. So, you know, they want to look at aspects of the housing market and how vulnerable those aspects of the housing market are to, you know, what are called shocks, like unexpected events that could, right. that could occur. And if those unexpected events occur, what would be the magnitude of the effect, not on the market itself, but on the financial system of Canada? Like so that, you know, what's the risk to which, um, after, let's say, for example, a major, uh, a major unexpected recession happens. Um, Uh, And the unexpected part is very important. We're not talking about the normal recessions that come and go and, you know, maybe we're in one now because of oil, maybe not, or so on and so forth, but I mean, like if there is like a major, major unexpected event happened that, that, that threw the world economy into a recession and Canada into a major recession again. Uh, what would, what would that do to the property market? And then what would that do, for instance, to, you know, the financial security of the, of the, of the country? And so that's what they're looking at. It's like vulnerabilities. And the, and the bank recognizes that those kinds of vulnerabilities, like a major unexpected economic shock or a major increase in interest rates, are very, very, very rare. And also the, the odds of them are very, very low. But if they do happen, what they're saying is, uh housing values could go down by 20 to 30% and that that would have some implication on, on on other things so what we miss from the analysis when it gets reported is the probability aspect of it the the idea that you know it's a very very rare case that we would actually see values changing but what they're concerned about is that if they do change by that magnitude it could have other implications um, I kind of like to characterize it a little bit like, you know, parenting, because I'm a parent, <laughs> so I think a lot of things in this context, but, you know, we as a parent will tell children, you know, we like to be, like to give them autonomy and let them get out and, and what. but we say when you get to the, when you get to the main street or when you get to the road, you look both ways and then you cross. Right. You know, I don't expect when I send my kid out to go to the park down the street that he's going to get run over by a car. <laughs> I don't expect that, and I wouldn't want that, and it would be catastrophic to me if he did. But I still let him go out. I still I still think everything is normal, but I say, by the way, just look for cars. That's I'm not I'm not expecting him to get hit by a car, but that's pretty good advice to give to somebody. And the bank is saying to us right now, you know, uh housing values have gone up okay so be it uh, people have had to borrow a little bit more in order to support that but it's okay that borrowing is uh, still supported by very low um uh, uh debt service ratio so everything is everything is cool in terms of the debt side but if people have that much debt and something catastrophic happens there's going to be a slightly elevated risk to the system that's what they're saying
0: very interesting that's uh, some great uh nuggets of of uh, background information like you said so I'm very curious, like, take us inside maybe. Uh, do you have any anecdotes of, like, when these IMF guys come to town and you're meeting with them? Uh, I mean, we sort of see them, people in the industry like myself and investors, we sort of see them as, you know, almost like the boogeyman that come in and say, ooh, your market's overvalued, ooh, you guys are, you guys are bad, ooh, you know, stay away from Canada or something like that. Um, and so we sort of picture them as these big, bad, you know, organization from – I don't know Europe or somewhere, and uh, coming in to, to tell us what we're doing wrong. But what's your uh, your experience in dealing with them directly, um, sort of, and consulting with them? Are they, uh, you know, what's their agenda? Why do they put out these these reports, or why do we get these headlines from them saying, uh, you know, things are overvalued by thirty percent? Are they, are they, are they as scary as they seem to be? <laughs>
1: Well, there's a few different questions bundled into one, but I can, yeah, <laughs> I can try my best on that. First off, the the why are they doing it? It's it's very similar to what I just said about the Bank of Canada. The you know the IMF is concerned about the same thing as the Bank of Canada is. Um, it 's just that their mandate, of course, is to assess all you know all all countries or all sorts of countries across the world so they' they're they 're doing, they're doing a little bit more relative comparisons because they they have to assess uh, the financial stability in Canada for various reasons because it has an implication on their business uh but they're also assessing you know european countries the us south american etc they're all over the world looking at different countries canada is one of the things they look at but when you're but but it's for the same reason as the bank is there it's the same reason i just explained they you know whether they're looking at canada or whether lo- they're looking at bangladesh uh, their, you know, their primary concern is, you know, what is the, what is the financial stability in those countries? What's the likelihood that the currency is going to go into a currency crisis? What's the likelihood that, um, that the, uh, you know, that the, that the banks might run into capitalization problems and so on and so forth? And I think that's a very legitimate exercise. Um, most of us in Canada would feel that, you know, we are not at risk of a currency crisis. We are not at risk of the banks um, becoming undercapitalized. Um, or any of those or in, or you know anything else on that list uh, and so we sort of sit back and say well you know I don't see why they're looking at us we're so great um, and we are <laughs> don't get me wrong yes yes <laughs> Take away the legitimacy of their exercise to look at everybody both good and bad um, now when they look at Canada and they say well you know it's everything is going along hunky-dory but uh, but you know look at these uh, look at you know the potential effect that this debt balance might have in the case of a catastrophic Problem and that is what they're saying. Um, I mean that's a legitimate exercise as well. I think that if we were, uh, if I, you know, if you or I was a, you know, we're, we're making major foreign investments in other countries, um, you know, I think that we would want a kind of a, a, a neutral. Uh, umbrella agency like that uh, generating some research that gives us a good view at a at a 30,000-foot level of the relative merits of, you know, Spain versus uh, Morocco or whatever, right? Like, we would want something like that, and I think that's sort of what they're providing. As far as the process goes, um, it also isn't a bad process. I mean, they send a team of researchers here um, – uh, about once a year to do this, uh, this evaluation. Uh, they set up, uh, interviews with, uh, varieties, uh, varieties of, uh, stakeholders. I mean, some of them are, are government, many of them are government. They're here at the, they're, 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 they're here hosted by, um, by the, by the federal government. That's their, that's their channel. That's their conduit. And, um, and, uh, they speak to, uh, You know, builders. They speak. uh, They speak to associations. They speak to analysts, private sector analysts like myself. They certainly speak to some of the bank economists and uh, and others in the thing. And they and they ask a kind of a series of questions. And it's a fact-finding mission. Um, So you know, I think that that process is probably about as legitimate as it gets. Um, I I will go back. I suppose I suppose to round out your, your your the barrage of questions on the IMF. I'll just go back to sort of say that you know, if you read those reports very carefully, they're pretty well reasoned. Um, but again, they get misinterpreted. The headlines that get pulled out are, are inappropriate. And I'll just go back to the one major problem that I have is that the word overvaluation is the wrong word for what they're doing, for what the bank of Canada is doing and for what the issue is.
0: Right, right. Well, that's great. Um, let's shift gears back into the the market itself. Um, we constantly keep going back to immigration as being a driving, you know, factor in, in the real estate market in the GTA, um, and and just going back to the fact that you know so many approximately a hundred thousand people are coming into the GTA every year, and we need a certain number of homes, just new homes built every year, to uh, house everyone that's coming in. Um, can you talk to us about immigration? What we can expect moving forward? How long can we continue to rely on this? You know, as real estate investors, moving forward, is this is this something that's you know not going, never going to go away? Or um, you know, what? How should we look at immigration? And should we feel good about it? Or how should we feel moving forward?
1: Yeah. So in a in a local market, even for a large local market like like Toronto. Um, Immigration, and let's just say, in a slightly more broader sense, migration can be—you know—it can be, you know, it can, be uh, can have a lot of pros and cons, right? Um, it it can—it's a—it's—it's it's a factor. It's probably our least stable factor, right? Because natural population growth—we uh, understand a lot about that around those demographics. We can kind of—you know—project forward. You know, if somebody is. If somebody is 20 years old today, we can pretty much know what age they're going to be in five years time, for example. It's very stable. It's very easy to look at. But migration is always our most, uh, you know, our most variable factor, right? So, uh, if it's good, it's great because it's, uh, it's created, it's fueling a lot of demand. But also migration and immigration patterns can, can change over time. As far as, you know, I mean, migration is a, is a national, immigration is a national issue. It gets set by federal policy. And federal policy has been ratcheting at that up over about the last twenty years we see we see the level the number of immigrants coming into Canada settling into Canada growing by about twenty thousand persons per year um all, about every five years it jumps up about twenty person, twenty thousand persons per year so right now we're at about two hundred and sixty five thousand uh immigrants per year and uh and the and and the just recently the federal government has announced a Another jump, basically, so it could be something in the range of about 275 to 280 thousand in the next five years, uh, per year. And um, and so you know, as we've seen this ratcheting up, of course, that has had a pretty important implication on real estate right the way across the country. It's uh, you know increased immigrants mean increased pace of household growth, and of course, increased pace of household growth means more demand for housing, um, whether that be ownership or or rental and so and so that's been important for the for the GTA because the GTA uh it's not attracting as many uh sorry as as big a share of overall immigration as it did in the early 2000s that share has eroded somewhat um as as economic growth in the in western canada has has created more opportunities for immigrants but it's still an absolutely large number, like, because the federal number is growing. Our share is falling a little bit, but the the number has stayed pretty constant at a, at uh, somewhere between about eighty and a hundred thousand.
0: Right now, our and, and so that's been good for the GTA. Right now, our share is falling. Is that is that mostly due to result of the you know the the boom in Alberta and the the oil boom, and and now that that you know the oil prices have fallen, will will it shift back to the gta will will we can we expect uh, a bump in the next you know 24 months uh migration in the gta that you weren't expecting maybe say 6 months ago you weren't thinking about that
1: no i think that's i think that's a good point and i think that's uh that's that's uh, you know a a very uh likely outcome that we're going to see in the next uh you know not just in the next 6 months but really driving uh the environment for the next 5 years or so in the in the gta um you know again i mentioned earlier on that there's you know immigrants and there's also internal migrants and both of these things uh have uh, somewhat similar effects from both economic growth and other factors so we've seen more immigrants the immigration share go up over the last 10 or 12 years uh in western canada because of the oil boom and also in addition to that we've seen a lot of ontarians many from on, many from toronto Uh, moving out to, uh, Alberta and Saskatchewan in particular, uh, as part of that boom as well over the last, uh, over the last, uh, 10 years. And so the net effect of that has been slightly slower population growth here, slightly stronger out there. But as, I think as your question, uh, uh, indicates, if we have a slowdown in the economy in Alberta because of the lower price of oil in Saskatchewan to a lesser extent, then there's going to be less of a draw uh, for labor. You know whether those be internal migrants uh, moving out there from Ontario or, and to a lesser extent, from Atlantic Canada, or whether it's uh, whether it's the you know where immigrants uh, plan to to settle. Less of a draw into those markets as the, as those economies cool, um, and uh, more into the traditional markets for immigration, but also the source markets for that internal migration, which would be Ontario primarily. And I guess to give you a little bit of scoping on that internal stuff, like I'm talking about, you know, people who are born and raised in Canada, but, you know, decide to leave Toronto and go to Alberta, for example, for a job, is that um, in the in the 10 years of the oil boom from about, uh, you know, 2004 up to 2014, uh, during that period of time, we saw net flows of persons from Ontario alone just from Ontario into Alberta of about 10,000 per year. Uh so okay. so I mean some people were moving from Alberta to here but the net number going out to Alberta was about 10,000 every year. Most of which of course are coming from, you know, the GTA because that's the that's the, that's a big chunk of Ontario. Yeah. And that and and in the 10 years before that that was you know you might argue it was a more normal time with balanced economies between the two regions. The, it was 2,000. So there was a there was a change of about 8,000 persons going being drawn out there. Like that's 4,000 houses per year, right? So right. Um, so that makes a big difference. Now the question is, will that revert right back to you know 2,000 uh, right right now? Is that is that what's happening now that the now that the thing now that those markets have cooled? And I would say probably it is actually. Probably we're going to see a pretty you know, once the demographic numbers, of course, take a while to catch up with us. They're, they're lagging <laughs> indicators in terms of the way that they're reported to us. So we yeah. don't know exactly what's happening right now. But when we do learn about the, you know, the first half of 2015, for example, maybe, maybe once you learn about 2015 as a whole, I think that we'll see that migration and that the Ontario population growth, primarily because of this migration effect and also about the, the landings of immigrants, will probably rise by about 10 to 15, maybe 20. Twenty thousand persons faster than what we were expecting before, and if a lot of those people are in the GTA, that's a big boost to potential household growth. And that's Absolutely. and I, and I, and I'll just say one more thing, and not to go yeah. on too long, is that I don't I don't feel that that is solely a 2015. Um, you know, picture a little boom and twenty boomlet in twenty fifteen and then and then everybody's gonna go back to the oil sector. Like I think that we're in a kind of a longer protracted period where there's going to be less uh, investment in oil and gas for a longer period, let's say five years or so. I think we're gonna see this being much a a much stronger uh growth period uh relatively speaking for Ontario than than we've seen since the very early two thousands.
0: Okay. Is that Am I reading correctly and saying you believe that low oil prices then will be here for the longer term like this is this not a, just a blip
1: yes i i yeah, I would say that that's pretty pretty uh i'm not, sorry certain is the wrong word for forecast forecasts are never certain, but there's a lot of consensus around um uh, middling oil prices, let's just say, like not forty dollars, not fifty dollars, but you know something in the sixty to seventy dollar range, but certainly not in the one hundred to you know one hundred plus range um and that's that's really the consensus I mean most analysts are in that in that band, and i don't and I don't disagree with that, and I think mm-hmm. that that you know if you look at oil futures et cetera uh I think yeah. that that's the, the kind of band that people are looking at. Uh, again over the next over the next five years certainly but oil cycles if you look traditionally are about 10 year cycles so uh, or commodity cycles I should say and uh, of which oil is is in it. and so I you know I would I would plan on uh, I would plan on that being a kind of a a pretty kind of a fundamental shift back to central canada in terms of that relative economic growth that's coming from that effect and and i it's worth saying that you know sl- uh, slightly oil, lower oil prices of course has a variety of effects it will slow down the pace of um capital investment in the oil sector in alberta uh certainly um and it's worth saying that that production in Alberta has not slowed down right they're still producing as much oil they just not it's not as much capital investment right now so it will slow that down but the lower lower prices as well put a lot of extra money into the pockets of consumers and ontario is full of consumers right so you know yeah. we have uh you know we have a a pretty big built-in stimulus to the economy and in the gta and in ontario with the, with lower oil prices it's going to come through you know not just at the pumps which is the obvious thing but it's coming, but it's already showing up in terms of, uh, food, you know, prices for food. It's showing up in terms of prices for certain building materials and stuff, so it's making, you know, it's gonna, it's gonna assist in terms of housing affordability as that works through the system and everything else uh the this analysis is compounded a little bit by the lower dollar, which of course is having some inflationary effects on certain commodities but on net the lower oil prices is uh is deflationary for most uh for most consumer prices, and that's good that uh you know that means that a consumer who's who's uh saving you know whatever it is two three thousand dollars a year by in terms of you know the flow through of these oil prices uh is either spending that which is good for the economy or saving it, which also is good, uh, not just, you know, I mean, savings are are not necessarily good for the short-term economy, but, you know, I think intuitively you sort of think about those as being better for the longer-term economy, right?
0: Absolutely, yeah. Um, Peter, this has been great. We've touched on a lot of different uh, subject areas. and You get interviewed by the media and and guys like me quite a bit. Is there any question that um, I haven't asked you or that you have never been asked about the market or about... um, the economy or about yourself but uh, that you wish that somebody would ask you, and what would that question be
1: well, <laughs> it's an interesting question it's a good question actually um well i'll say I'll say one thing that I think it's this is at least sort of food for thought, and i guess I know i have to you know i have to uh, i i guess I, I have to express this in the form of a question right Like just like jeopardy but anyway i'll, yeah. I'll well, <laughs> uh, but uh, but like. I'll, I'll I'll say something sort of food for thought for you and your your listeners and and this is and 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 this is uh you know uh you know we're we're investors in real estate uh, a lot of your listeners are are investors in real estate Absolutely.
0: um so
1: obviously we understand it as an asset class you know, sorry we are understand you know we it, we understand it. We see it as an asset class. We understand that it is an asset class. It has, you know, performance metrics and this and that, and we're expecting it to pr- produce returns, and that's all. That's all good. Um, but I think there's a kind of a perception um and i get this in the questions i get asked I'm on bnn a lot by those by the bnn you know uh, interviewers yeah. and and the way they ask questions the way the media ask questions the way lots of people ask questions it's like they see housing investment the housing sector the housing market as being just another form of the stock market it's just like equities. It's like, right. you know, we're, you know, are we expecting a crash to happen? Are we expecting a, yeah. people use the word soft landing for housing all the time, yeah. which has virtually no meaning. It has almost no meaning. And, you know, soft landing in the stock market has some sorts of meaning, right? It means prices are, you know, prices, price, gro- or sorry, asset uh, growth levels, the stock market index, for example, levels off and, and, and perhaps falls, but not too far, right? There's some metrics around that, and it has no almost no meaning in in housing. And people confuse um, indicators out of housing in all sorts of different ways in terms of the way that it impacts cycles. Because, for instance, in in Calgary right now, of course we've got um, we've had the number of of resales fall off. Uh, so we've got slightly lower resales happening now, you know, I and mean, it's a market that's obviously in transition. We just spoke about that earlier. But is that a market crash? Well, we don't see prices changing. So you know, how, anyway, there's a, there's a lot of differences in in the in the way the housing asset works for most uh, uh, Canadians. And remember, for most Canadians, their their principal residence is their biggest investment, and it's one that they're not going to liquidate very quickly if things go 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 poorly. Um, and it's one that uh, probably gets a lot of thought put into it when they both make the investment and when they think about disinvesting. So, you know, if there's a question that doesn't get asked, it's really how do you characterize the housing market, the housing investment market, relative to? Any other investment market? How is it different? And I would say that the answer to that is that it's a fundamentally different. It's uh, you're talking about a, something which is both a con- consumption good for most families because you've got to live somewhere, obviously. It's yeah. something which is a which is a major part of, of of people's financial plan in most cases. I mean, we've you know 70% of Canadians are homeowners, and and just about all of them consider their their house to be their their major financial investment, right? Right. Uh, and also their major assets that they will be passing on to, you know, you know, their children and so on and so forth.
0: Their retirement plan, yep. Their
1: retirement plan, etc. And that's, that's very much different than, you know, just their, their mutual fund, which obviously has retirement plan elements to it. It has, you know, whatever, but they would be, you know, they'll dump it in a second if it, uh, if, uh, you know, an analyst comes on, uh, BNN and says, you know, so-and-so's, so-and-so's growth fund is, uh, is headed south. I mean, you have a lot of people will dump it or whatever, but people will not, make rash decisions around their housing and that's why we tend not to get uh sharp you know changes in the cycle and that's that that's also why it's exceedingly exceedingly rare for housing prices in canada to ever go down in nominal terms like where you know where you actually start seeing them going down 10 or 15 percent or whatever or even you know or or even more um that's why it's very very rare i mean it it's uh you can have all sorts of down cycles in terms of activity levels you know where housing sales or housing yeah. starts or whatever go down yeah. but to actually see uh, market wide housing prices go down it's exceedingly rare i can think of you know two or three examples out of the last 40 or 50 housing cycles if you sort of think about like housing cycles being a localized one like toronto you know toronto cycle calgary etc if you think about all of them in the post war period um, you know, you can think of you can think of Calgary in the early 80s, you can think of Toronto in the early 90s. You can think of a minor adjustment with the Asian crisis in in Vancouver in the in the late 1990s. Uh, but, you know, can you think of very many others? No.
0: Right. Wow, that's great.
1: And that's why I mean stock markets are very very well defined by their price cycles, but uh housing housing does not have the same characteristics.
0: Right. So great advice. We need to start treating the housing market differently because it is different. Um, Peter, if people want to get a hold of you or learn more about about, um, Altus Group, what's the best way for them to do that?
1: Well, I guess a good start is always the uh, Altus Group website, which is uh, altusgroup.com. Okay. And uh and again my role is in the economic consulting group, so you can migrate your way through the website uh in order to get there and to learn a little bit more about you know about our work and what we do in particular. Mm-hmm. Um you can keep in touch with us on Twitter, which is uh Altus underscore group. Okay. So at Altus underscore group. Yep. Um which uh you know and you can often find out uh uh, that, that, that Twitter, you know, in terms of the tweets that go out, it's obviously, it's, it's highlighting all sorts of aspects of the work that we do, but, uh, often when I'm speaking or if, a, if an engagement is coming up, etc., w- there will be notices coming out, uh, from that, from that, uh, vehicle as well, and, uh, I also encourage people to, uh, you know, get in a hold of me by email or where, or, or whatever else, which is, uh, accessible through the website.
0: Okay, great. We'll be sure to include links to all those uh, uh, sites that you just mentioned on the show notes for this episode. Uh, Peter, once again, I want to thank you for your time. Thank you for being on the the, uh, show today. And hopefully we can have you again on the show in the future.
1: Thanks very much, Andrew. It's been
0: a pleasure. Great. Bye for now. Bye-bye. Okay, there you have it. That was my interview with Peter Norman. I hope you found that interview useful and interesting. And once again, for all the show notes on this episode and all the episodes from the True Condos podcast, just head on over to truecondos.com slash podcast, and you'll find everything there. Thanks again for listening. If you'd like to leave a review for the show, it'd be greatly appreciated. You can do so on iTunes. You can also hit me up on Twitter, Facebook, email, um, send me a text, let me know what you think about the show. Or if you have any questions about the condo market or condo investing in Toronto, uh, by all means, reach out to me anytime. Thanks very much and have a great week. Thanks for listening to the True Condos Podcast. Remember, your positive reviews make a big difference to the show. To learn more about condo investing, become a True Condos subscriber by visiting truecondos.com.